I meant to mention earlier to say thank you to for all the, the cards and all the, uh, the calls and just uh, the outpouring of love that uh, came to Chelsea and I this week as we, uh, we mourned the loss of our child. And, and so I just wanted to thank you for that um, and just being kind to us in that way. Uh, it's been really encouraging and we've been able to uh, enjoy some joy amidst the suffering. And uh, just it's a hard providence to accept, but we have been able to experience God's blessing uh, here in the church and in community with you all. And so I wanted to make sure that I said thank you for that. Uh, you might have noticed if you've looked at your insert this morning that uh, we're not in Mark, and that's because it's, it's Christmas time, and so I'm somewhat obliged to move towards more Christmassy passages, and this is one in Titus. You might not know that, but uh, it is. And so we're going to be in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. As you turn there, I would like to jog your memories just a little bit. I want to ask if you remember the movie, It's a Wonderful Life. If you haven't seen it, you really should. It's, it's one of the American Film Institute's top 100, so it's a, it's a good film to check it out. But in case you, you don't know or you just don't remember, it stars James Stewart as George Bailey. He's a man who, in his youth, dreamed of traveling the world. But somewhere along the way, he, he's made sacrifices, and a lot of those sacrifices were for other people. And it means that he never gets to leave his small town. This particular point in the movie, he's weary and broken. And through no fault of his own, he's, he's going to be declared bankrupt. And so we, we find him standing on a town bridge about to commit suicide. But just then, his guardian angel intervenes. The angel gives him a vision of what life would have been like if he had never lived. George sees that his life counts, that it makes a difference. He sees that he's lived a truly good life, a wonderful life, touching the lives of many people in small but decisive ways. And in many ways, this is what the Apostle Paul is doing in the letter of Titus. He's giving us a vision of a life that touches people in small but decisive ways. He's giving us a picture of a life that has eternal consequences. Paul gives us in Titus the pattern of a wonderful life, the good life, which is a godly life. And he points us to the power source for that life, which is Jesus. The purpose of his letter is to further the faith of God's elect, to further the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. Paul tells us that in verse 1 of chapter 1, that he's writing so that we might know God more. And a consequence of knowing God more is you become more like Him. He's writing to spotlight the fact that knowing Jesus changes our lives completely. That knowing Him empowers and causes us to live the good life. That's the godly life, the wonderful life. In the first ten verses of chapter 2, which is the chapter we find ourselves in this morning, Paul's told us what Christian living looks like. And in our text today, he's pouring the foundation for that Christian life. He's reminding his readers that God accepts us not on the basis of good behavior, but on the basis of Jesus' behavior. Paul reminds us that we live a wonderful life, not in order to merit peace with God, but because peace with God has already been given by grace through faith in Jesus. 
Paul exhorts us to live the good life by stressing the grace and the glory of God. He underlines God's grace and His glory in this particular section by structuring it around the two appearings of grace and glory. And so if you look at your text right there in front of you, you'll see in those verses it starts off the appearing of grace, and then down in 13 you will see glory appears. Those are the two things around which this text revolves. I've, I've attempted to summarize Paul's main idea in our one big thing this morning. And that's this, God's grace transforms us and it trains us. God's grace transforms us and trains us, and our outline will reflect that one big thing. We're going to talk first about how grace transforms us, and then we're going to talk about how grace trains us. Before we do that, let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our hearts to your word that you would get rid of all the things that cloud our minds at times like this, or thinking about the wood pile next to our house, or what, what football game we're going to watch later, whether or not the Browns can win, or where we're going out to lunch. Father, I pray that you would just get rid of all of that and focus our hearts and our minds and all our faculties on you. Father, change us by your word. Help us to encounter you, to experience you in this time together this morning. That we might be more like you. That we might fall more desperately in love with you. And it's in the name of Jesus that we ask these things. Amen. So let's talk about how grace transforms. Look with me at verse 11 and then we're going to jump down to 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And how does God bring salvation for all people? Verse 14, through our Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. As we've said, this text is structured around the appearing of God's grace and the appearing of his glory. And in verse 11, we're confronted with the appearing of his grace. How does his grace appear? Well, it appears to the world and the person and work of Jesus. It's why we sing joy to the world. The Lord is come, let earth receive her king, let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature sing, in heaven and nature sing, in heaven and nature sing. Joy to the world, the Savior reigns, let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills and plains repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy, repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found, he rules the world with truth and grace. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love and the wonders of his love and the wonders, wonders of his love. Joy has indeed come to the world with the birth of a child. God's promise of sending a great rescuer has been kept. This is what we celebrate during this Advent season, during the Christmas season. The arrival of God's promise, the arrival of God himself, the appearance of grace that would bring salvation for all people. Christmas is about the first appearing of Jesus it reminds us that God has not left us to fend for ourselves, but has instead come to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. 
Christmas reminds us that God became a man, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and defeated death on our behalf in his resurrection. You know, only in Christianity does God come to rescue his people. Did you know that? What an amazing fact. That only in Christianity does God come to rescue his people. In all other religions, you have other folks going and telling about God. But in Christianity, God comes to us himself. And he tells us a truth that we already know. That we'll never be good enough. We'll never be able to keep the rules perfectly in order to merit peace with God. We can't save ourselves, but we need a Savior. And when our Savior, Jesus, appears to us personally through the proclamation of the gospel, when we come to know him as our rescuer, our God and our king, we are transformed. When you meet Jesus, he changes you. He compels you to turn from your way of living life towards God's way of living life. He gives you a new heart, a new identity, a new hope. Jesus gives us new hearts by changing our desires means that our deepest wishes are no longer for power or stuff or sex or wealth, but for God himself. No longer do we long to do things our own way. He redeems us from lawlessness by helping us to love the law that he has given. He gives us a new identity by making us a people for his own possession. We become his people when we follow him by faith. The phrase redeemed us at the beginning of verse 14 actually echoes Exodus 19.5, which says, God says to Israel, you will be my treasured possession. That's what we are, God's treasured possession when we follow him. What transforms us into his treasured possession? Well, it's his love. It's his life applied to us by grace through faith. And when you follow Jesus, Paul's words in Romans 6, 4 become true of you. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The words of Peter become true of you in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. You are a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you're in Jesus, this is true of you. Jesus came as a baby lived a perfect life, died as a perfect man, and raised so that we might rise with him. On the cross, Jesus buys us back from death. He that knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. He paid the penalty for our sin and he cleanses us. Apart from this appearing of grace, apart from Jesus, we are like pigs playing in the mud. We're content to stay dirty. And we're ignorantly awaiting death. Just as mud makes pigs dirty, sin makes us guilty. And just like pigs, we enjoy the mud. But what Jesus does is he plucks us out of the mud of the pig pen, and out of the mud of sin, and he cleanses us. Just like Ezekiel 36.25 tells us, prophesies, I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. 
makes us clean. He cleanses us and purifies us by virtue of his vicarious and substitutionary death. Once we were pigs possessed by Satan, waiting for eternal death. And now, by faith in Jesus, we are princes and princesses, the treasured possession of God, waiting for our new hope of eternal life together with God. Isn't that amazing? Only in Christianity does God come to rescue His people. He's come to rescue you. Do you know Him? Only the true God gives a new heart, a new identity, and a new hope. Only Christianity explains that life with God is a gift from God. It's given by God. It's not something earned by men and women. The gospel also shows us that life is not about what we do for God, but about what God has done for us. Grace transforms us into God's people. Thus, what we do flows from who we are. What we do flows from who we are. This is a little bit opposed to the typical cultural view, which says that who you are flows from what you do. Or more simply, our our cultural culture typically thinks that your status as good or bad is determined by what you do. Do bad things, you're a bad person. You do good things, well, you're a pretty good person. But the gospel tells us that our status as good or bad is determined not by our actions, but by whether or not we follow Jesus. You see, apart from a relationship with Christ, everyone is bad. Everyone is bent in on themselves, pursuing their own righteousness, trying to prove their own self-worth. But in Christ, He has proven our worth. He is the one that cleanses us and makes us pure. We can't make ourselves pure. We can't clean ourselves up from the muck and mire of sin. It's not what you do that leads to who you are, but who you are that leads to what you do. Therefore, all men apart from Christ sin gladly. We're sinners. And those that have been transformed by grace through faith, well, we we still sin a little bit. But we struggle against sin. Instead of loving it, we hate it. And we begin to be trained by grace. Here's a story that's told of the late queen mother of the British royal family when her children, Princess Elizabeth, now Queen Elizabeth II, and Princess Margaret were young, and they were going to enjoy a party or or go visit somebody. She would remind them before they left. This is what she would say to her kids. Royal children have royal manners. Royal children have royal manners. And it was a reminder that their behavior needed to match their status. Their status came first, and their behavior should follow that status. Royal children have royal manners. And these verses say the same thing. In Christ, we are members of the royal family of the universe. And our behavior should match who we are. God's grace transforms us into his people and it trains us so that our behavior matches our status. Let's talk about how grace trains us. Look with me. I'm going to start at verse 11 and read down through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. 
and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, note here, the appearing of glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those that are transformed by grace still require the training of grace. This is because even though it is true we are delivered from sin's penalty, or justified, by the work of Jesus, we're not yet glorified. So let's, let's talk about it this way. You can think of salvation in three stages, all right? Past, present, and future. We'll start with the past. We believe in Jesus and the gospel. We trust him, and so we have been rescued from sin's penalty. This is justification. Jesus takes our penalty and gives us his righteousness. That's past aspect or justification. Let's talk about the present aspect. So we've been united to Jesus and his resurrection, and so we are free from sin's power. It means that we're able to pursue the good life, the wonderful life, the godly life, by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This is sanctification. Sanctification is simply becoming in practice what God has declared us to be in truth. It's living in light of your new identity. It's growing up as royal children, learning those royal manners. It's matching our behavior with our status. Then there's the future aspect of it. We've been united to Jesus, and upon his next appearing, upon his return, we'll be rescued from sin's presence. When Jesus appears in glory, he will erase every trace of sin and evil in the world. It's here that we'll fully inherit the immeasurable riches that are already ours in Christ. This is glorification. New heavens, new earth. So to recap, past justification, present sanctification, future glorification. The penalty has been paid. We're matching our status or we're matching our behavior with our status. And in the future, even the very presence of sin, even the temptation to sin will be removed when Jesus comes and makes all things new. The reason I bring up all three aspects is because in these verses, Paul addresses all three. He addresses the penalty in verse 11 and 14. He addresses sin's power in verses 12 and 14. And he addresses sin's presence in verse 13. He does this in order to showcase for us the content of the gospel. Paul is saying we are God's people. Even though we're not yet perfect, we're still his people. And as God's people, we're being trained to live according to God's beautiful design. We're learning to become and practice what Jesus says we are. And what does he say we are? Righteous. So we're learning to be righteous. We're learning to walk in newness of life. We're in training. Now, anytime I hear the word training, I think of my good friend who some of you have met, Ryan Riddle. So, you know, he's a little beefy now, you know, he's a big guy, strong. But the reason I think of Ryan is because he wasn't always that way. Uh, in college, he used to be more about Guitar Hero and Star Wars. Uh, and he still, he still loves Star Wars. I don't want to in, insinuate that he doesn't. But uh, in the past five years or so, what he did was he committed himself to physical fitness. And as a result, he's much more healthy and he's in great shape. Now, wasn't it all easy for him to begin training or to, to stick with it? But he knew it was necessary for him to have a healthier life. And if you talk to him now, you'll, you'll really learn that he is very disciplined. That his training is in no way done. He's always striving to do better, and therefore his diet is very restricted. 
And his workout regimen is like every day at the same time. He's very committed to it. His training is often painful. It requires time. And his results usually take a while to show up. I think the same is true with our spiritual lives. God's training us by his grace. He uses what's often a painful regimen. It requires that we give up things that are hurtful to our health. The training of grace also requires that we spend time in His Word and in prayer. And its results usually take a long time to show up. What we see God's grace training us to do over time is to become more like Jesus. And in this text specifically, what grace is training us to do is to say no, to say yes, and to wait. It's training us to say no, to say yes, and to wait. We're being trained to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. See, the gospel changes our desires, gives us a new heart, as we said earlier. And St. Augustine used to say that sin, in its essence, was disordered love. That sin is love out of order. In other words, apart from Jesus, our lives are controlled by by loves other than love for God. And as a result... We say yes to disorder and destruction. When you live life for yourself, you are headed towards disorder and destruction. And you are in very serious danger. It's not by accident that Paul explains in Romans chapters 1 and 2 that God in His wrath against those who reject Him gives them up to sinful passions. The sinful passions exist in their hearts. Commentators like Douglas Moo point out that this cannot mean God impels people to sin. Since Ephesians 4.19 has said that sinners give themselves up to their own sinful desires. It means that the worst and fairest punishment God can give to a person is to allow them their sinful heart's deepest desires. What is the heart's deepest sinful desire? Keller suggests that it is this. The desire of the sinful human heart is for complete independence. We want to choose and go our own way rather than God's way. This is no idle wandering or straying from the path. As Jeremiah puts it, no one repents. Each pursues his own course like a horse charging into battle. We want to get away from God. But as we've seen, this is the very thing that is most destructive to us. I mean, in the Bible, Cain is warned not to sin because sin is slavery. Worldly passions, sin, destroys your ability to choose, destroys your ability to love, it destroys your ability to enjoy. It also brings blindness. The more you reject the truth about God, the more incapable you are of perceiving any truth about yourself or the world. The end result of God giving people their deepest desire is hell. Hell is God actively giving us up to what we have freely chosen, which is to go our own way and be our own, to be the master of our own domain, captain of our soul. Our desire is to get away from Him and His control. Hell is God banishing us to regions we have desperately tried to get into our whole lives. Packer says it this way, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever, worshiping Him, 
or without God forever, worshiping themselves. You see, hell is a natural consequence. Even in this world, it's clear that self-centeredness rather than God-centeredness makes you miserable, makes you blind. The more self-centered, the more self-absorbed, self-pitying, self-justifying people are, the more breakdowns occur relationally, psychologically, and even physically. If, as the Bible teaches, our souls will go on forever, just try and imagine where the self-centered soul will be in a billion years. Hell is simply one's freely chosen path going on forever. We wanted to get away from God, and God in His wrath and justice sends us where we wanted to go. It's all to say that the gospel acts as smelling salts, waking us to the reality of God and to the dysfunction of our hearts, which are deceitful above all else. God, in His grace, gives us new hearts, puts our loves in their proper order. See, grace trains us to say no to hell, no to our own way of living, no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It also trains us to say yes to Jesus, yes to heaven, yes to living self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Without calling for perfection, Paul says that a new direction in a person's life is the outgrowth and expectation of God for those experiencing his salvation. Paul instructs us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives, to live wonderful lives. I think Jerry Bridges is helpful here, and he speaks to each item as it relates to relationship in our lives. Self-control corresponds to our relationship with ourself. Uprightness corresponds to our relationship with others. And godliness corresponds to our relationship with God. He says this, Self-control expresses the self-restraint we need to practice toward the good and legitimate things of life, as well as the outright denial of things clearly sinful. Upright or righteous conduct refers to just and right actions towards other people, doing to them what we would have them do to us. Godliness is having a regard for God's glory and God's will in every aspect of our lives, doing everything out of reverence and love for Him. Grace trains us to live out the implications of our salvation. It teaches us to live the good life. Grace teaches us to match our behavior with our status. Royal children have royal manners. It teaches us to say yes, it teaches us to say no, and it also teaches us to wait. Look with me at verse 13. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. As Christ followers, we look back at the appearing of grace to that scene in a manger the birth of a child, and we celebrate Christmas and the cross. But as verse 13 highlights, we also look forward to the appearing of glory. There is, if you like, a push and pull to the Christian life. We're pushed from behind by the wonder of grace, and we're pulled forward by the hope of glory. Eagerly expecting the return of Jesus helps motivate us to live the good life. By setting our minds on the past, the present, and the future aspects of our salvation. Remember, justification, sanctification, glorification. 
We are able to see our fleeting pleasures and the temptations to sin in their proper perspective. C.S. Lewis has famously written in his work, The Weight of Glory, about how apart from the experience of the grace of God, we desire lesser pleasures instead of the greater pleasure of life together with God. He writes this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. We are like ignorant children who want to go on making mud pies in a slum because we can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. You see, when we have a proper perspective, when our loves are in their right order with Christ at the top of them, we are irrevocably, irresistibly driven into living godly lives in this present age in anticipation of the perfect age to come. You see, we are looking forward to the holiday at the sea. We start to become and practice what God's declared us to be. We are those royal children growing up with royal manners. We're starting to get a taste of heaven even now. God's grace has appeared in Jesus and His glory will appear in Jesus. We live between appearings. We live between the appearing of grace and the appearing of glory. And both appearings make up the engine that drives the Christian life. In other words... We look back to the grace of the cross. We rejoice that we've been rescued from sin's penalty. And we look forward to the glory of Jesus' return and long for the removal of sin's presence. And as a result, we're motivated to live now like it's then. We're motivated to live now like it's then. Let me illustrate it this way. In 1982, a guy named Prince Sometimes he's a symbol now, I think, or he might have gone back to Prince. I, I don't know. But he wrote a song called 1999. And the lyrics went a little something like this. I was dreaming when I wrote this. So sue me if I go too fast. But life is just a party. And parties weren't meant to last. There's that little riff in there. Dun, 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 dun. War is all around us. My mind says prepare to fight. So if I gotta die... I'm going to listen to my body tonight. Yeah, they say 2000 Party over. Oops, out of time. So tonight I'm going to party like it's 1999. Some of y'all are like, yeah, that's a good one. It's my jam right there. In Prince's worldview, life is just a party. And parties, they're, they're not meant to last. In other words, this life is all there is, so have as much fun as you can find. Get as much self-satisfaction as you can. Do what you want. Follow your heart. Because pretty soon this life will be over and you'll be out of time. Prince was exhorting his listeners in 1982 to live then as if it were in the future. To live in 1982 as if it were already 1999. At the time, he was telling his listeners... Live now like it's then. Paul's worldview is just a little bit different. He tells us that grace has appeared and eternal glory is coming. He says life isn't a party without meaning that comes to an end, but to the contrary, life is a party without end full of meaning. He's telling us the true celebration is being in Christ. 
Paul is telling us that just as God has kept his promise to rescue men and women from their sins, he's going to keep his promise to return and to remove the very presence of evil. He's returning to make everything better than right. He's returning to make everything sad untrue. And he exhorts us, much like Prince exhorted his listeners. Paul says to us, you live between appearings, but friends, live now like it's then. Tells us to live now like it's then for two reasons. First, to enjoy a foretaste of heaven. When we live according to God's beautiful design, it's just how life works best. We're able to enjoy a sliver of the harmony of heaven. We taste and we see that the Lord is good and we long for more. We long for the appearing of the glory of God, our blessed hope. Secondly, we live now like it's then in order to adorn the gospel with attractive lives. If you've ever gone out on a date with a lady, you know that they usually take some time to adorn themselves, to make themselves more attractive or more beautiful. You know, they spend some time putting that makeup on. They find just the right heels, some hoop earrings, maybe a little black dress. They want to make themselves more attractive. They want you to see their beauty. These things complement them. They adorn them. little necklace. Likewise, followers of Jesus are to adorn the gospel. We're to highlight the beauty of the good news by living attractive lives. By living the good life. The godly life. A wonderful life. The life you live presently, in this present age, matters. It matters. Friends, this is your It's a Wonderful Life moment. There was a time that you were broken and bankrupt and without hope. But at the right time, God has revealed himself to you through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And if you have placed your faith in him, he's saved you. And just like the angel in It's a Wonderful Life, Paul the Apostle is telling you, your life counts. It makes a difference. If you live the good life, a wonderful life, a godly life, then you will make the gospel attractive. And you will be a tool by which God rescues the lives of many and brings himself glory. Every decision you make impacts everyone around you in small and decisive ways. Your life impacts eternity. So live the good life, the godly life. Live now like it's then. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. We do this because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Live now like it's then. The grace of God through the person and work of Jesus rescues us from our sin trains us to live godly lives, wonderful lives, in this present age, in anticipation of our blessed hope, the return of the King. God's grace transforms us, and it trains us. Would you pray with me this morning?